And I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. That statement of Psalm 133, or Psalm 122, rather, verse number 1, calls to our attention just how honored and blessed we are today to assemble, to come together to offer worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, verse 24. And today, as we're assembled in this way for this purpose, we're excited about the possibility, and we're excited about how it'll edify each of us and the direction of that worship that we'll send toward God. As you may have noticed in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, we'll be giving some thought to that passage that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Brother Mike read to us from Matthew, the 16th chapter. Let me encourage you to keep your Bible open there. We'll be looking in some detail at the statements found in verses 18 and 19 of that chapter. These introductory remarks will precede us on our way. I would submit to you that given the presentation of the New Testament, and quite frankly, in many ways, the Bible as a whole, it simply isn't possible to overstate and to overestimate the importance of the church of our Lord. In Acts 20, 28, Jesus, the description in that passage is of the following tenor. Paul, in very serious character, addressed the elders of the Ephesian church, and it was to them, he said, "...take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood." When you and I think about the church, the Pippin Church of Christ is, of course, one body of believers that meets worldwide. And yet, as we think about this congregation, what allows it to stand, what allows it to exist? The blood that Christ shed purchased it. This church didn't just come about by human means and human scenarios. The blood of Christ purchased it. That means it's extraordinarily special. Let's develop that thought a little bit more thoroughly and a little bit more carefully this morning, using as our guide the words of our Savior Himself. You'll notice about the midway of that slide, it goes without saying that in the roughly 20th century since the church was first established, the church has so often been maligned and so often been abused at the hands of the human family. Men have insulted her, tried to change her, so fundamentally attempted to approach the nature of redirecting what the Lord once put in place, but Jesus never intended it like that. The church which our Savior's blood purchased, and the church which our Savior promised to build is the one that we're going to cast a spotlight on this morning. And as we do that, let's close that slide by revisiting that passage when Jesus made statement about the founding of this precious body. First of all, let's set the text before us. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, we notice a rather amazing set of developments. Jesus at this particular time was laboring in a northern sector in Palestine. Verse 13 says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, if you have a Bible map, or at least you can imagine in your mind, as far as we know, this is the furthest excursion the Lord ever made northward from Jerusalem. Now, Palestine by itself wasn't that large a place, and yet Jesus was a rather far piece from Jerusalem, admittedly. But while here, the text says, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I hope you'll be impressed 
at least for the next moment or two, with the thoroughness of that question. Here was Jesus, and as His disciples were there gathered about Him, Jesus made this question of them, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Would you be impressed with the fact the Lord was not asking that question because He didn't know the answer? Jesus could read the hearts of people, John 2.25. He knew exactly what individuals were saying about who He was and the kind of work that He was performing. Jesus wasn't asking this because He didn't know the answer. He was asking to begin a conversation that would embed in the hearts of those disciples an unforgettable and unchanging truth. Quite often in the Bible, isn't it true that either God or Jesus would ask a question and all the while they already knew the answer? Back in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it true that as God had that conversation with Adam, Adam, where are you? God knew very well where Adam was. That question was intended to embed in the mind of Adam, what he had done. You've alienated yourself from me because of this sin you've committed. Genesis 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. And so it was here. Jesus knew what folks were saying about Him. He understood well the tenor of conversation. But of course, you and I are so amazed at this conversation that shortly was to develop. As you'll notice next on that slide, it says, They answered. They began to say, verse number 14, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. As these disciples then shared with Jesus, Lord, we've heard some that say, you're John the Baptist. Now please be impressed, John was put to death two chapters earlier in, John, in Matthew 14. Some had already appreciated that the boldness and the kind of character exemplified by Jesus reminded them of John the Baptist. Others, verse number 14... Elijah. Now the word Elias, as it appears here in the New Testament, that's the Greek way of writing the Old Testament word Elijah. Some, in fact, as they reflected upon and thought about that Old Testament prophet named Elijah, they could see in Jesus some similarity to him. Now Elijah was a powerful and bold prophet. He labored so often in harsh circumstances. It was he who, in fact, labor during those days of Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 17. It was he who had to flee for his life and had to be preserved and provided for by the ravens from heaven, or rather by, by ravens sent by God in 1 Kings 19. Suffice it to say, the third answer was this, Jeremiah. Now you and I know that those Old Testament prophets, some of the grandest figures who've ever lived... When you and I think of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Habakkuk and Zechariah and so many others. And yet when the people thought about those prophets, Jeremiah came to mind when they saw Jesus. Jeremiah, as you and I read the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, we find a man who was not deterred or in fact was uncompromising in his devotion to truth. Jeremiah more than once was thrown into a dungeon because he had the nerve to preach the truth to what the king didn't want to hear. But it didn't change the fact he preached it. Lastly, you'll notice one of the prophets. You can begin to see that Jesus was regarded in rather high company, included in a listing with John the Baptist and Jeremiah and Elijah and the others, 
But you'll notice those weren't satisfactory answers at the most basic level. Because in the next verse it says, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? These close associates, these who have labored with Jesus now for some time, I want you to research the innermost appreciations of your heart. Tell me, who do you think I am? May I submit to you that's still one of the most basic and foundational matters that approaches every single human being. Who do you, Randy Bybee, say that I am? Put your name in that same sentence. And may I say that there will come a moment, there will come a time when, after we've left the confines of this flesh, that we are going to be present in the very presence of this one. And our life will give the tale of the tape as to whether or not that we lived in accordance to the reality of what we claimed. Aren't you impressed by the fact that when we make the confession, when an individual presents that beautiful sentiment, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Right before a person's immersed, we ask that question because the New Testament teaches it. And when the person says, yes, yes, I believe, you'll notice that all of us are then commissioned from the time we make that confession to live the rest of our life dedicated, committed, and devoted to the truth of that statement. He is the Son of God. Let's read on. You'll notice that Peter in that rather bold way that often was characteristic of him. Peter several times seems to have been the one that would answer first, seems to often have been the one who would make an initial statement in response to a situation or circumstance. Wasn't it Peter who pulled out the sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus in John chapter 18? Wasn't it Peter who in fact stepped out of that boat and walked on the water in Matthew 14? Wasn't it Peter who also in John chapter 6 said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. That's just a sampling of some of the boldness or at least the aggressiveness that was characteristic of Peter. And this time he said, verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Please be impressed with the fact that Peter didn't just make use of the statements that he perhaps had had heard others say. Though others said, you're Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah. Peter stated that isn't so. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. And that word Christ means the anointed one. The one commissioned and sent from heaven to fulfill those Old Testament prophecies. You're the Christ. The wording of verse number 16, very, very powerful, isn't it? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So many truths stated in that simple sentence. First, God is alive. You may remember a few years back there was that particular book that said God's not dead. Well, the reason that book came about is because there was a movement that asserted He was dead. Oh, that isn't so... You and I serve the living God, and there is no other. Furthermore, you'll notice in this same passage, the Son of that living God had, had been sent. Christ Jesus was on earth, and inasmuch as He had come, Peter, he asserted that truth. You're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that was to come. 
the thrilling message centered in that led Jesus to reply in verse 17. You'll notice on that slide, Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter, the words that you have just asserted didn't come about from words shared by men. Hearsay wasn't your source for this information. It came from heaven. Verse number 17, Blessed are you, Peter, for making this statement. I hope all of us to this day don't ever forget how blessed it was the day you became a Christian. Don't ever forget the monumental and eternal change that happened in your life. And of course mine, the day I made that famous statement and was baptized into Christ. Again, think about the eternity that changed. Prior to that you were lost and now after that baptism you were saved. It truly was a fantastic thing. Don't ever forget that day you became a Christian. Let it be etched powerfully in the recesses of your memory. As you and I read further, we now come to verse 18. Jesus wasn't finished, you see. Not only did He pronounce a blessing on Peter. He said, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Please appreciate the sentence structure with me. It says, Thou art Peter first. He identified the fact of the one who had made this statement. You indeed are Peter. But he said, Upon this rock. The rock was not Peter. The rock was the absolute testimony that Peter had just stated. Namely, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Greek text will bear that out. There are two different Greek words. The Greek word for Peter is not the same word as for rock. The Lord was not stating the foundation of the church was Peter. Rather, it was the foundational confession that Peter had just made. That rock is the one on which I, he said, will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As you appreciate near the bottom of that slide again, you'll notice that Verse 19 goes on to say, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, you might take quick observation and note with me that verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven to borrow the exact verb structure in the Greek language. Again, please notice, Jesus wasn't giving Peter the affirmation to determine the doctrine of this church that was about to be established. He says, Peter, what you preach and what you bind will already have been bound in heaven, and it'll be, of course, delivered to you. The Greek verbs are of that form. Please notice then, when the day of Pentecost comes and the preaching work of Peter thereafter, he simply preaches what already had been bound and determined as the law and as, of course, the doctrine for this body. As you and I close that slide together, please notice that Jesus stated the kingdom and the church are one and the same. The kingdom is the church. Today, if you're a member of the church of our Lord, you're a member of the kingdom of God 
May I submit to you one of the greatest statements anybody can make. I am a citizen of the kingdom. With all that stated, let's turn the slide and begin to place some greater emphasis upon the words that our Savior used. First of all, verse number 18, upon this rock. Living in this part of the world, you and I know very well about rocks. Now I suppose if a person grew up in a desert region, perhaps in the Sahara Desert or otherwise, you might not see a lot of rocks. But you and I know the strength and the fortitude and the foundational power that's available as something is founded on a rock. We know how hard a rock can be and we know the kind of things that a rock makes possible. Jesus said, upon this rock. As I noted a moment ago, that rock was the confession that Peter made. It was not Peter himself. Peter was a man. He made his share of mistakes. You and I, not too many chapters after this, it was Peter who in one moment would assert, I'll never leave thee, Lord, and though other men may desert thee, I won't. And it wasn't but a few hours later that a a rooster crowed and already he had denied Jesus three times. You see, Peter had his faults. He had his failures. Jesus wasn't founding the church on Peter. He was founding it on that unchanging truth that Peter had asserted. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If only our world would appreciate the dramatic power in a statement like that one. An unchanging truth. And though times may come and go, and the fancies of men may change so swiftly... That truth will never change. You'll notice on that same slide, I would ask you to consider there are a few other places that this word rock is used. And I would ask you to notice the strength and the fortitude that attaches to it. In Matthew 7 verse 24, there it's described for all of us to seriously consider about the fact that it's a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. But where does a wise man build? And you and I have known since the time we were small that the wise man builds his house on a rock. And the winds blow against it and the rain beats against it, but it stands because it's founded on a rock. In this context, that unchanging and strong foundation is the very nature that Jesus is the Son of God. May we each be impressed as the centuries have now come and gone, almost 20 of them since the events of a chapter like this one, and the foundation of the church hasn't changed. Aren't you thankful for that? Oh, if the church had its foundation and its basis as something attached only to the human family, it would long since have ceased to be. Unless you and I read further. As you think about that rock in Mark 15, 46, we notice that at the time of the Lord's crucifixion, those rocks in such great strength, you notice, they were described yet again with the power and majesty of the strength of their character. The church that you and I are part of, the church founded by our Lord, is built on an unchanging foundation. May I submit to all of us, if you want your life to be founded on strength in an unchanging and anchored way. It needs to be founded on Jesus. Any other foundation is weak. 
Any other foundation is unstable. Any other foundation is unsatisfactory. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.11 As you and I contemplate that rock, the sturdiest of those foundations will lead to a life that's tested and true and a life that's directed ultimately to heaven. What else did Jesus say? Not only did He make reference to the rock, what about the three words that followed it? Upon this rock, I will build. Three words fraught with such majesty and power. Jesus said, I will build. Let's develop the thought. That word build, as you would easily suspect, it means to erect a structure, to build a house, if you please, to erect a particular thing. Jesus promised here He was going to build something. That something, of course, He readily now would immediately suggest in a moment to be the church. But He said that He'd build it. Would you be impressed again with this thought? No human being anywhere has any right to construct to build a church. The Lord said He had that right. Based on the confession that Peter made, that truth that Peter had asserted, I'll build my church. You and I know so easily what has transpired in the century since. Many an individual has taken upon the liberty of himself to found some structure, some organization, some church. You and I could easily list them. John Wesley, John Smith, John Calvin, so many additional ones. You and I have as much right to start a church as any of them did. That's the truth, plain and simple. No human has the right to begin a church. The Lord here forever asserted, I'll build my church. Would you be impressed with the fact that Jesus said He would build it? Now, the verb tense He used was very plain. We'll build is a future tense verb. At the time the Lord made that statement, the church had not yet been established. He hadn't built it yet then. But in Acts chapter 2, the marvelous turning point, the hub, if you please, states before us it was built then. Jesus said, I'll build my church. You and I have often noted that in terms of number, there are so many organizations, denominations if you please, they number into the thousands. And as we noted a moment ago, no human has ever been given by God the right to build the church. For Jesus exclusively had that right as you can see in this passage. It might be fair to close that slide by noting, there are many in our world who are under the impression that the church began in the days of John the Baptist. Would you be impressed? That's not so. Remember, John died in Matthew 14. He was put to death as his head was stricken from his body in that chapter. And yet in chapter 16, Jesus yet said, I'll build my church. It hadn't yet been established. John had been dead a long time by the time the church was actually established. John never lived to see it. He was never privileged by the God of heaven to be a member of it. Isn't it true? In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said, Among those born of women there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. 
May you understand along with me that if you're a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, you occupy a position in many ways greater than John ever had the privilege of, of understanding. Because you're a member of the body he longed to be a part of but couldn't. Being a member of the church, you see, is the greatest privilege given to the human family. May we never take that for granted. And may we never look upon it with trivialness. Let's continue our journey. What else did Jesus say? In regard to this church that our Savior established, point number three, or our third observation, Jesus said, I'll build my church. Please notice He didn't say the church. Now that alone would have been impressive, but He said it's my church. It exclusively belongs to Him. You and I often use that word my Maybe with respect to the car that's in the parking lot, you might say, my car. You purchased it. You have the title to it. It belongs to you, and you can choose what to do with it. You can choose to fix it or sell it. You can choose to have it undergo a repair. Jesus said, this church is mine. He has the exclusive title right to it. As we noted early in the lesson today, He purchased it with His blood, Inasmuch as it belongs to Him. Look at some of these additional statements about it. In Colossians 1 verse 18, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body. He's the head of it. He determines then in every avenue the features by which she undergoes and carries out her work. He's the head. In exactly the same way that your head determines the activities and the features of your body. May I say, to some extent, some of those activities are carried out consciously. Some of them are carried out subconsciously. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. You don't have to tell your lungs to inflate and deflate. It does it automatically, but your brain is controlling it. In the same way, when it comes to the church, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the head. He dictates and determines the avenues of our worship, Why do we do what we do in worship? Because the head has determined it. It isn't for me to decide it, and it isn't for anybody else either. What determines whether or not you become a member of this body? The head has to determine it. What determines whether you're saved eventually? The head has has had to determine it. Aren't you impressed then with Jesus as the head? Colossians 1.18 You'll notice in a sister passage to that one in Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, And having put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. He fills all in all. And you and I, as we comprise the church, individual members who've dedicated and committed our life to the full service of Him, we are this precious body, His church. As you and I think about that head, May you again notice that the word that Jesus used to describe this church is singular. He didn't say, I'll build my churches. Both in Greek as well as in English, that word is singular. Now time hasn't taken away the power of what men have thought to do, but Jesus promised to build one church. One. Now, I think we're all, as we reflect on the 
religious confusion that's descriptive of our modern world. Would you again consider with me every single Christian denomination is less than 500 years old. And yet these statements of which we read today are almost 2,000 years old and hence 1,500 years elapsed from the time that the Lord made statements like these until the human family began to establish and generate these denominations. And yet Jesus promised to build one church. Please notice with me Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 4. In that passage, it highlights the unity characteristic of service to God. Paul wrote, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Question, how many gods are there? One. Second question, how many lords are there? One. That isn't difficult. Third question, how many Holy Spirits are there? Same passage, one. Our world seemingly has so little difficulty understanding the unity and the oneness characteristic of those three. Fourth question, how many faiths are there? And now suddenly there appears to be thousands. The same adjective, one, that was descriptive of God, that was descriptive of Lord, that was descriptive of Holy Spirit, the same one says exactly how many faiths there are. Fifth question, how many churches are there? The exact same listing says there's one body. I wonder what that body means. It's the same verse we just noted earlier. And hath put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be head over all things, to the church which is His body. When Paul made reference then to the body there and said there's one of them, he said there's one church. May you and I never lose the understanding that's characteristic of the statement Jesus made, I'll build my church, there's one of them. I want to be a member of that body, don't you? I don't want to be a member of any other one because there's no other body that has the earmarks and the hallmarks of belonging to Jesus. For He only promised to be a one. So to be a member of anything else isn't satisfactory. To be a member of anything else is to be lost. As you and I come near the close of that slide, Jesus promised, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we come to this next slide, would you reflect then on the church and an elaboration of that statement that I just made? We've tried to highlight so far today the great significance attached to the church. I suppose one of the temptations, one of the tendencies that can plague you or me is to begin to feel that the church isn't that significant I get up on Sunday morning and I go, kind of glad when I get back home, I suppose. Wednesday night, I find the time to go sometimes. Would you be impressed that if that's all the church means to us, we are not where we should be religiously and we're not where we should be spiritually. Our faith isn't as strong as it ought to be and our understanding isn't either. The Lord died for that body. And to not be a member of it, I am lost. If I've reached an age of knowing wrong from right and am not a faithful member of that body, I am lost. 
Let's develop it like this. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. You'll notice this church then was such that a doctrine was to be preached in relation to it. Peter, you're going to have to say something. You are going to preach the marvelous message that shall be characteristic of this body. Now, understand that heaven will already have bound it and loosed it accordingly. But when you and I read other verses like these, Colossians 1.13, near the beginning of that Colossian letter, Paul spoke in such loving praise in regard to the church. For he talked to that church in Colossae and said, You have been translated out of the world of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You see, before becoming a member of that body, a person's in darkness, separated from God, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. You don't have any hope. Ephesians 2 verse 12. Not only that, look at Romans six seventeen. But thanks be unto God that you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Note with me, before then a person obeys the gospel, you're a servant to sin. You're a child of the devil. You're one whose direction is apart from the truth that leads to eternal life. But that crossover point, that line of transformation, notice when you've obeyed from the heart. Those first principles of the doctrine of the gospel, when a person obeys them, you now are in the body because you've been added to it by Christ. Isn't that what happened on the day of Pentecost? Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. The next point on that slide then is this. When a person obeys the gospel, what's the New Testament presentation of these matters? So an individual makes a decision to obey the gospel. The message of truth has touched that person's heart. And he or she makes a decision, I want to be saved from my sin. And Jesus is the only one whereby that can take place. And hence, at a service or some other time, the person makes it known. And so that an individual will then ask in regard to confession. And then the time of baptism arrives. And that person with a smile on his or her face and those witnesses who are privileged to watch, they see that person go down into the water. And the person's completely submerged. Buried. The old man's buried. But then that person rises to walk in newness of life. A new life. Not motivated as a child of the devil, but a child of God. But note one other thing. At the time of baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, you're baptized into the body. And we've learned earlier today, it's the church. So at that moment, you enter that water, not a member of the church, and you come up out of it a member of the church. What a remarkable transformation. May we never lose sight of how significant that church is. Christ Jesus added me to it when I obeyed the gospel. Now, among the other things that you and I have studied or learned from this passage today, as we close that slide, 
is Ephesians 5.23. Jesus is the Savior of the body. So if I'm not in the body, I'm not saved. Are you a faithful member of the body? Am I? It's a rather overwhelming question, and we'll use this last thought then in light of it to close our lesson. The church is extraordinary. In many ways, words, human words fail to describe it. But thankfully, we have the words of the Holy Spirit to describe it. The extraordinary character is developed in words like these. Were you aware of the fact that in Hebrews chapter 11, those Old Testament worthies, men like Abraham and Noah, and men like Moses and David and others, they never lived to see the church of which you and I are a part. But they longed to see it, they wanted to see it, they desired to see it. But they died before it came to be. May we never forget how special the church is. And may we live our life in open pursuit of it. Always striving to live worthy of that calling whereby we've been called. May none of us ever bring reproach on the church. To live in such a way that might cause someone else to reflect badly. Well, if that's what the church is about, I don't want anything to do with it. Look at the hypocrisy characteristic of him or her. May that never be said of you or me. For you can imagine proverbially the tears of Jesus being shed when someone who claims to be his child chooses to live so far beneath their privileges. Jesus died for this church. He died that it might exist. And He died that you and I might be a part of it. And He's looking forward to taking it home to glory one day. Are you and I living faithfully in it? Or are we living in a way that's causing others to not have an interest in it? That's a challenging question for all of us. And your life and mine is an open example. Eyes, both young and old, are watching you and me with care. That, if that's what Christianity is about, if that's what being a Christian is like, and you and I can imagine how that sentence might be completed. May you and I set a strong and lovely example based on Matthew 16. I will build my church, Jesus said, and praise be unto God that church exists. And may I suggest it shall exist until time shall be no more. Daniel 2.44 had prophesied long ago that once established, the kingdom would never cease to be. You and I can thankfully be a part of that body. As you and I look forward to some of the remaining statements on that slide, let's use it to challenge ourselves at a moment of invitation. If your life is not one that's characteristic of the sweetness and majesty of this church Jesus promised to build... Realize the Lord beckons and calls. He implores you to come back to your first love. The door of invitation you see is open. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is your heart burdened? Is your heart wallowing at this point in sin? It doesn't have to be so. The cross is a timeless testimony to how much God loves you and He wants you to be a faithful child of His. But the decision is now yours and it's mine. This hymn of encouragement has been selected. If your life currently is such that you would wish to come forward to make things right again, you once were a faithful Christian, but you're not any longer. You know it, and Jesus knows it. Maybe there are many others around you in your life who know it. 
understand it doesn't have to stay that way. Don't you want to be a faithful member of this body of which we've studied today? Don't you again want to be devoted and dedicated to the kind of life that's pleasing unto God? If we could help you today in that way, we'd be honored to do it. Upon your repentance and confession, we'll pray to God on your behalf, and He has guaranteed that He will forgive you. If you've never become a Christian, though, the plan of salvation is different for you. You first must contact the blood of Jesus. You have to believe Him to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. It's required of you that you repent of the sins in your life, confess the greatness of His name just like Peter did here, and then be immersed in water, baptized for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And if we could assist you in that way today, what a joyous day of celebration it would be. At this time, may we ask, Jesus promised to build His church. May all of us strive forever, all the days of our life, to be a faithful member of that body. And if we could help you today, we'd be delighted to assist you, and we implore you to come while together we stand and while we sing.